Well, here's my first question. Do you think it's a little dangerous handing out guns in a bank? Did you know that after learning about the attacks of 9-11, George W. Bush sat in a classroom for seven minutes reading My Pet Goat? Hello and welcome once again to Michael and Us, a depressing and nostalgic journey through the life and art of Michael Moore. <laughs> I'm Will Sloan, with me? Luke Savage, hey guys. God, and what a week we've got for oh, you. Oh my god. We've, we've, I think, really hit the climax of the show, even though we still have countless more weeks to go. Ugh. We watched <laughs> Fahrenheit 9-11. What is there even to say? Well, this was my introduction of Michael Moore back in 2003. I saw this in the theater. 2004. 2004, excuse me. So in 2004, I guess I was uh, 14 or 15 years old when this movie debuted and i remember going to see it in a theater in stratford ontario next to the giant tiger i remember the local mp was there and Mm -hmm. so it it felt like this was a big event everyone needed to see it i remember making people angry in the film because i kept turning to my friends and explaining who the people in the in the film were because uh i was just i was just getting into like reading the news and stuff at that point and i really wanted to show off how much i knew and uh this film shocked me i suppose because it's you know a shocking film but also i remember walking out of theater being like see i told you guys <laughs> what uh, was your experience with it well i had already been a michael moore fan for a couple of years by the time this came out and it's really i think hard to overstate what a big deal this was at the time there, there had been such a drumbeat up to this movie the fact that uh, miramax had produced it and then disney refused to distribute it and uh, Michael Moore claimed that was because they didn't want to alienate George, uh, sorry, Jeb Bush, governor of Florida, who could give them tax credits for the theme parks. Anyway, what, one of many elaborate conspiracy <laughs> theories that Michael Moore has proffered. Yeah. You know, it went to the Cannes Film Festival, where it famously got a 15-minute standing ovation, won the Palme d'Or, which is insane, wow. I think, uh, beating such films as Wong Kar Wai's 2046, uh, a pitch at bong, Vera Seth Thickles, uh, Tropical Malady, and other important films. Well, I'm sure Michael Moore is better than Wong Kar Wai. We all yeah, know that. Fuck that guy. Yeah. Um, <laughs> What's it, he ever done? It, you know, it came out in theaters, uh, made over $100 million, which was unthinkable for a documentary. I remember just for a couple of days, wall to wall CNN coverage of this film. And, you know, there was there was kind of a, a hype around this movie of, oh, Michael Moore, he's he's going to reveal the truth. What what what's he got in this movie? Uh, mm. that there was, you know, the poster of this movie um, had Michael Moore uh, opening up a document marked classified <laughs> uh, where I guess he found the name of James Bath. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was it was huge. And, you know, I remember uh, this isn't interesting at all, except to me. But I remember. Um, well, the same could be said for our podcast. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Very much so. I was uh, in Florida, uh, in Orlando, on some sort of family vacation. Oh, wow, the scene of the crime. Yeah. <laughs> Where um, my uncle, a pretty blue-collar guy, mm-hmm. uh, had agreed to go with me to Fahrenheit 9-11, but it was sold out. So we decided to go see another movie, and I picked Coffee and Cigarettes, the Jim Jarmusch film. <laughs> 
which I'd never seen a Jim Jarmusch film. Yeah. I just knew that he was supposed to be a good director and Bill Murray was in it. Mm-hmm. So I thought, oh, it's probably like Wes Anderson. And uh, my uncle hated coffee and cigarettes. Right. He groaned through the whole thing. After it was over, he said, that's the worst piece of shit I've ever seen. And he never <laughs> let me forget it. <laughs> so I have some negative associations with Fahrenheit 9 Wait, so this film was formative for you because you got to see a Jim Jarmusch film and you saw Fahrenheit 9-11 looking, eventually. Yeah, looking back, you know, I wasn't at the time all that excited about seeing my first Jim Jarmusch film. But mm-hmm. I would say that over the years, I... I've come to respect Jim Jarmusch more than I respect Michael, Michael Moore. Moore yeah. And um, off the bat, last week, we really we really tore into poor Michael about mm. his film Bowling for Columbine, mm. which I think is a bad film. Yes. This one is better than Bowling for Columbine, and yet, at the same time, I think it just furthers my suspicion that Michael Moore isn't all that smart. Yeah. Um, yeah. And is not up to the task of making a film like this. Congressman, trying to get members of Congress to get their kids to enlist in the Army and uh, go over to Iraq. The USA Patriot Act allows for searches of medical and financial records. It gives law enforcement almost unlimited power. They wait till the middle of the night. It's printed in the middle of the night. How could Congress pass this Patriot Act without even reading it? Sit down, my son. Uh, We don't read most of the bills. No one read it. Members of Congress, this is Michael Moore. I would like to read to you the USA Patriot Act. Let the eagle soar. From the corridors of power. Congressman. Congressman. To the streets of small town America. To the front lines. This is an impressive crowd. The haves and the have mores. Some people call you the elite. I call you my base. Comes the true story that will make your temperature rise. I call upon all nations to do everything they can to stop these terrorist killers. Thank you. Now watch this drive. But let's kind of talk about the structure of the film and, you know, what this film is for anyone who uh, hasn't seen it since 2004, which likely is most of the people listening. Why would anybody watch this movie? This movie, when I'm thinking of movies that I see the most often um, in the remainder bin outside the used bookstore in town, I think of the two-tape VHS Titanic. Titanic, yeah. I think of the VHS of Jerry Maguire. Right. And I think of this movie. Yeah. Which is perpetually a dollar, because nobody wants it. At your local gas station. So, yeah, I mean, this film is about as kind of time contingent as uh, a film could possibly be. But it is also a really interesting time capsule. You know, if only for a lot of the footage in it. Like, it's amazing in, you know, we're sitting here in 2016, seeing, like, John Ashcroft, Condoleezza Rice, Paul Uh, Wolfowitz, Dick Cheney, you know, the whole, the whole crew. People who used to be, like, part of our lives. Yeah, Um, yeah. Yeah, and, you know, pretty soon we're going to have a whole new administration with a whole, whole new fresh batch of face. Everyone, everyone that Trump appoints is going (laughs) to, they're going to become. Hulk Hogan and uh, Joe the Plumber and (laughs) Mr. T. And who's the, who's the football player that, is it Tom Brady that supports him? Oh, sure, why not? Uh, if it's not Tom Brady, Tom, I'm I'm sorry, but I think I think it's you. We can we can uh, we can look into that later. Um, so this film really has a you know a th- kind of three act structure. It begins with it opens with the with a prologue with it yeah with a little prologue that's about the 
2000 election and, you know, kind of the famous stolen election, which, you know, I think most people would, at this point, would probably agree with Michael Moore's take on it. Um, Although, even so, he tells it in a manner that um, I I would like to get a bit of a fact checker on, because according to his telling of the story, all the networks were calling Florida for Al Gore until Fox News called it for Bush, and then everyone reversed uh, their earlier decision, which created a momentum that led to... um, Mm-hmm. <laughs> that led to Bush uh, stealing the White House, and he attributed, and Michael Moore attributes it to the fact that the person who made the decision at Fox was George Bush's first cousin. Yeah, and I, I, I um, you know, I, I haven't read up on the 2000 election for a long time because it's 2016, for God's sake. <laughs> but I mean, the fact is that news networks don't have any kind of constitutional role in the United States, mm-hmm. so. There were there were also you know dealings at the uh, you know election commission and things like that that had an impact on uh, subsequent events and of course Moore doesn't doesn't tell us about those. We do see a scene in the uh, the United States Congress where Al Gore is basically presiding over the proceedings that make uh, Bush's status as president elect uh, official. And so uh, there are tons of House Democrats who are complaining about the result. I think all of them African American. Uh, or almost all of them African American, and uh, but they don't have any signatures in the Senate, so they can't uh, they can't raise the issues. Which so, is an interesting piece of footage that I don't think people had really talked about until Michael Moore picked it up. So I mean, if there, if Michael Moore has done nothing else, he's found some interesting bits of news footage that he's brought to our attention over the years. That's right, and and I mean that is also true. I think of most of the rest of the film. So Act One is is about nine eleven and the Bush administration's response to it. Act two is kind of about the aftermath of 9-11. So the terror alerts, the Patriot Act, security procedures at the airport. And Act three deals with the Iraq war, both the war itself and then, you know, the impact it had on military families back home and and that kind of thing. So this is is the structure of the movie. And uh, I guess before we get into, into each of these acts... I mean, it did feel a little bit like we're watching Bowling for Columbine again with this movie. I mean, there's a little more structure, but it has the same... Like, the best thing you can say for this movie is that a lot of the footage, just on its own, is powerful. And it was things that... It depicts things which a lot of Americans would not have seen and would have found genuinely shocking. But the film just kind of meanders from, like, one Mm -hmm. anecdote to the next, one little scene to the next, and... Like Bowling for Columbine, I do think it lacks a, a thesis. In and a there's way. and there's just a general sense that Michael Moore will throw anything at the wall and see what sticks, no matter if one thing contradicts the other. And yes, some of this footage is very powerful, but I, I think almost every single time Michael Moore finds a powerful thing, he undercuts it with some bit of cheap irony. So late in the film, we see. Um, you know, really upsetting footage of an Iraqi woman whose house has just been bombed and her family killed, and mm-hmm. she's she's yelling at the camera and and she's saying she's saying God is great and only God can save us now and yeah. and then it cuts to Britney Spears Ugh. chewing bubble gum and saying I think that we should Ugh. just support the president and everything that he does. It's so cheap. Which it's just yeah, it, it's incredibly cheap and it, it really cheapens uh, the the impact of the footage that we mm. just saw. And, and, and I hate it. Yeah, and, and throughout again, there there are all these kind of there scenes that are very disturbing. There are scenes that are uh, just very somber, and then there'll be these really emotionally 
awkward segues went tonally awkward segues where suddenly Michael Moore is doing kind of his hokey humor mm-hmm. and you'll see George Bush his face superimposed onto like a, a, a oh cowboy in a 50s movie or something and it's just yeah so I mean this is uh, of the films that we've seen for this uh, misbegotten podcast <laughs> the I mean we, we've said over and over and over again how they're not very funny right uh, this is the most serious yeah. of the films we've seen the one with the least amount of humor mm-hmm. it's also in its attempts at humor I would say the least funny one that's uh, right this is Michael Moore at his hackiest so for instance uh, during the opening section, during the elaborate conspiracy theory about um, uh, the Bush administration trying to shelter the members of the Bin Laden family, well, I'll get into saying what what the fuck this conspiracy theory <laughs> even is, but but it cuts to footage from Dragnet, right, and saying, well, isn't this what a police investigation is supposed to be? Or yeah, later in the film, um, we see, as you said the Bush administration, all their heads superimposed on cowboys from Gunsmoke, which is, you know, super hacky. And common theme that comes up whenever I talk about Michael Moore is, is he as dumb as he looks? Like how much (laughs) of, how much of this, his stupidity is just pragmatism because he thinks, well, you know, if you got a, you need a little spoonful of sugar to help the medicine go down. These are, these are difficult concepts and the American people are dumb and we gotta, we gotta give some laughs for them if they're going to take it. But uh, these laughs, uh, you know, the comedy moments in this film uh, are very forced and unnatural yeah. and I think very cynically deployed. And yeah. uh, I don't know. I, this movie just took fucking so much out of me. <laughs> yeah, it was it was a real slog. And, you know, again, we're, we found ourselves recording quite late at night. It's, uh, it's, it's after midnight now, um, you know, because what else is there to do on a... You know, Tuesday night, except watch Fahrenheit. Or, or it's Wednesday. Wednesday. Excuse me, I'm losing track. Well, I guess technically, <laughs> technically, we're a few minutes into Thursday now. Oh, that's good. Uh, the weekend's boy. coming. Isn't that nice? <laughs> <laughs> and we got the next Michael Moore film to look forward to. Oh my to. god, we're gonna have to watch fucking Sicko. <laughs> oh no, next week we should move on to the extended universe. Yeah, okay. Yeah. We'll talk about that later. Yeah. But uh, okay, so let's let's talk a little bit about the mechanics of this film uh, before we complain about it some more because the mechanics, I think are what we really found wanting about it. This first section really has two kind of competing theses, uh, or, well, I suppose the first two sections. Like, one, well, Bush is depicted as incompetent. Um, he's somebody who didn't, what didn't acknowledge the threats. You know, he was briefed on a direct threat, uh, mm. according to Michael Moore, about Osama bin Laden planning to attack the United States by hijacking airplanes. He did nothing. He sat in a classroom uh, when he was told of the attacks. He was on vacation all the he time. He kept vacationing. You know, he here was this lame duck president. Um, so, you know, the first, the very first part of the film, that plus the prologue, you know, Moore is really depicting a person who's out of their depth, who's kind of fallen into this uh, this job, who isn't really interested in it, and who's very bad at it, and who shouldn't have had it to begin with. But then he starts developing a second thesis that... that is very strange. Uh, you know, there's these kind of labyrinthine segments where he's talking about all the connections between the Bush family and the Bin Laden family and between the Bush family and Saudi Arabia generally. Um, part of this involves, um, you know, networks of... of uh, so let me try to lay out fa- this this theory. Wow, if you can do it, I was going to do it in a sort of generalized <laughs> it, it, it's way. It's really complicated, but I, but I think I might be able to do it and I could maybe require your help at some point if you can. So when George Bush was in the National Guard, he had a friend called James Bath. 
James Bath's name was blacked out of um, George Bush's war record when it was released in George Bush's presidency, but it existed there beforehand. Anyway, James Bath was kind of a Texas money man who uh, raised money from Saudi royalty. Luke's on his phone now, which just goes to show like how interesting this is. <laughs> Thanks to his connections with Saudi royalty, he was able to get Saudi money, including possibly money from the bin Laden family to fund some of George Bush's businesses. And Saudi royalty, rich Saudi families have been constant funding partners for all of George Bush's businesses. And Michael Moore interprets the fact that James Bath's name was blacked out of um, military records as basically being an admission of guilt Mm -hmm. on the part of Bush. Yeah. So the military records show that, you know, two officers were, I guess, censured for Mm -hmm. failing to show up to a medical examination. One of them is James Bath and one's Bush. Um, So, so that's the theory. And he, and basically after nine 11, Michael Moore saying that members of the bin Laden family who were in America were escorted out of the country back to Saudi Arabia. They were the only people to be really uh-huh. allowed to fly a few days after 9-11. And that the Bush administration squelched any and all efforts to have a thorough looking into the role that the Saudis might have played in 9-11, instead shifting focus onto Iraq. Right. And that, and that fact is really the thing that connects these two kind of somewhat contradictory theses, you know, that Moore develops in the film. Because first of all, it's like, they're incom- the Bush administration is incompetent because they're letting these people go, they're botching the investigation, uh, but then also they have all these connections to it, so it's like, what's really their motivation? Um, and Moore, you know, kind of, he, he evokes a lot, he implies a lot without really saying it, but at times, like, it does seem like he's, you know, he's suggesting that um, the United States is like act. The United States government was actively protecting the, you know, people that were complicit in the attacks and stuff. And it's very strange. Just on the one hand, it's the administration isn't competent. On the other hand, it's like they're these like incredibly manipulative like puppet masters who you know know exactly what they're doing. And I just think it's a bit weird. And it's it's like in Bowling for Columbine where he kind of says one thing and then the next. Mm-hmm. set of scenes sort of con- seems to contradict it. When the second plane hit the tower, his chief of staff entered the classroom and told Mr. Bush, the nation is under attack. Not knowing what to do, with no one telling him what to do, and no secret service rushing in to take him to safety, Mr. Bush just sat there and continued to read my pet goat with the children. Nearly seven minutes passed with nobody doing anything. As Bush sat in that Florida classroom, was he wondering if maybe he should have shown up to work more often? Should he have held at least one meeting since taking office to discuss the threat of terrorism with his head of counterterrorism? Well, much of uh, Bush's incompetence, alleged incompetence, is conveyed through the deployment of hilarious uh, Bushisms and uh, funny clips of him being a, a goof at his. You guys, you guys remember Bushisms? You remember those calendars you hey, could get hey, Luke, every day? Luke, they misunderestimated me. <laughs> remember Classic. That? Remember that? Yeah, yeah. good stuff. <laughs> now, now watch this drive. Yeah, bring it on. <laughs> uh, so, so there's a lot of that. Uh, do you do you buy the conspiracy theory? I mean, I think the trouble is, as with everything more, is that there's there's an element of truth to what he's saying. It's definitely possible for the Bush administration to be both incompetent and for the United States government to have 
extensive connections, you know, like American oil firms and even, you know, defense contractors and things having connections with, you know, the Saudi royal family. Like, all those things are true. I just don't think he develops them in a kind of sophisticated way. Like, he, he hyperbolizes for rhetorical purposes. And, like, as is the problem, I think, you know, if, if I have kind of a one criticism of more generally, it's that, like, there's never any, like, systemic or, like, systematic analysis, like, mm-hmm. running through his films. Like, we're not left... There's, like, nothing actionable at the end of them except for just anger. He Like, he doesn't give you anything to work with except you can be outraged and you can... Or, or you can uh, be you, sort of vaguely you, you hopeful. Can, you can vote. And you can vote. <laughs> uh, for what? He's for not John gonna, Kerry. He's not going to tell you, except he's not yeah. going to tell you that. Um, I mean, a much more interesting film would be a film exploring the relationship. I mean, we were talking before about uh, Why We Fight, which was a documentary produced, I think, a few years after this by the BBC, which is a look at the American military industrial complex uh, and the way, like the way that these, uh, you know, massive private firms have incredible power within the United States government and are in many ways, like their profit motive is responsible for a lot of the wars that uh, have happened and for the projection of U.S. military power around the world generally. But Moore is not really interested in developing anything like that. He's just interested in this kind of hyperbole that has no narrative like thread mm. I, like if if you were to sit him down and like really probe a lot of this movie like or any of his movies i'm not sure he would you know have a lot to say he would have like one or two rebuttals mm. and then by the third one he would be, he would run out of by the way michael this I is know, a challenge i know you're way. listening yeah <laughs> feel anytime pal <laughs> Come bring, on. bring it on yeah <laughs> we we want to have we want to have you as a guest really mm-hmm. um so so, so so from there, uh, we moved to the invasion of Afghanistan, which, according to Michael Moore, was an elaborate ruse to build a pipeline across the Middle East mm-hmm. for, uh, what was it, Halliburton? Unical. Unical, yeah. And Hamid Karzai, he points out, was uh, was an advisor to Unical. So Hamid Karzai was the first uh, president installed um, through a rigged election, which he doesn't actually seem to, he doesn't bother to mention mm-hmm. that for some reason. First president installed of Iraq or prime minister, I can't remember after the uh, after the toppling of the uh, the Taliban. So Moore indicates that uh, they cared a lot about installing the pipeline, but didn't used uh, going after Bin Laden and the Taliban as essentially an excuse to go in there. Uh, he doesn't say it outright, but I think he suggests that it really wasn't even in the Bush's best interest to catch Bin Laden because then he'd have Bin Laden as. Uh, a constant phantom menace, basically. Right. Uh, but then, but then, here we are again, because then the next thing that he complains about is that the U.S. military response was too sluggish and was, mm-hmm. and they, like they let Bin Laden escape. Uh, the U.S. special forces didn't get to where Bin Laden was until two months after 9/11. And what we need was a stronger, faster he, military he response. He complains that he gets a guy saying that. Uh, you know, there are more police on the streets in New York City than there are U.S. soldiers in Afghanistan, which honestly isn't even that shocking to me. But uh, New York City's huge. Right. What, do you, what do you expect? His complaint is, you know, having complained that the thing, that the whole war was a sham, it then seems like he's complaining that, but then they didn't even, tr- like, make a serious effort to get the man, to c- capture the man responsible and bring him to justice. So again, it's like just... These, I mean, all of these, all of these moments. If you're sitting in 2004 and you're watching this, they're all incredibly powerful, especially if you're a teenager like we were. But I think just mm-hmm. to more people than that. I mean, this was a huge film. Um, you know, I think regardless of age, all of these scenes individually have 
rhetorical impact, just like in Bowling for Columbine. But when you actually take a step back and kind of evaluate the film, like in many ways, it doesn't really make sense. Anyway, uh, as one of the many C-list talking heads in the film says, uh, I mean, the people he interviews in this film are really not interesting people at all. Um, One of them says, you can make people do anything if they're afraid. So we then move on to the introduction of the terror alerts and uh, a montage of news footage of telling people to be aware, be wary. Be aware because terrorists might use poison pens like in James Bond. They're around every corner. um, And George Bush is being very ominous and Mm. saying uh, we're we're in a, we're in a horrible violent age and and we we can never be secure again because Mm. the terrorists are out there. Mm. Um, And of course this is all uh, a ridiculous hyperbolic reaction more implies um except that uh you wouldn't believe it but the coast of oregon is a a massive unprotected coast which is vulnerable to terrorist attacks but we've only got one single state trooper in all of oregon who's who's on it part-time right the bush administration isn't doing enough we're not we're not putting enough uh people protecting our borders Mm. but at the same time everything's the, threat, well, the threats are exaggerated the threats are exaggerated but also the threats are really real and we need to worry about them the threats are exaggerated um i, I mean it's the same thing with uh, chiding bush for the fact that he didn't take the the terror warning seriously before 9-11 happened right and uh, then claiming that his response wasn't like tough enough like he did, it wasn't yeah. fast enough the military response. or or it was too hyperbolic right um, yes yeah, so there's really a contradiction here and then again having complained about the terror alerts he starts he starts complaining that the security measures in airports are too lax mm-hmm. pointing out that people can bring a certain number of lighters and and books of matches on the plane you know which is kind of you know shocking that that was true after 9-11 or really at or all. or after the shoe bomb guy yeah like after it all like after anything at all mm. but at the same time it's just again it seems to be a contradiction because he's complaining about all of these security measures and the culture of fear that they establish and then he's also he's also saying that the, the security measures are not adequate and it's like in bowling for columbine it's the same kind of uh contradictions where he's saying that you know there's this culture of fear and you know you know people are being scared deliberately uh, and then at the same time he he blames the news for he blames the news when they when they're depicting like happy things because he's like why aren't you showing the real right you know it's the same kind of contradiction you know and i wonder if we'll notice this when we go ahead to you know sicko and capitalism a love story this kind of contradiction where just for rhetorical purposes he makes two completely opposite arguments that contradict one another right i'm sorry i'm just like so the thought of watching sicko and capitalism yeah i'm sorry we won't we won't talk about them anymore i won't bring them up again until next week it's so Uh, wearying to me right now it's all right we'll get well we you know you'll go home get a good night's sleep it'll it'll be fine so we move into act three which is about the iraq war and i think that this is the best part of the movie and i i think that part of this it well i mean yeah they're, 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 it's better in relation yeah. to compared to the other two parts of the movie stacked up against them. It gets pretty old towards the end though, doesn't it? It gets very boring in like probably the last forty minutes. Like we were <laughs> yeah. really bored. But like there are some scenes in this which are unbelievably gruesome. Like it's mm. actually amazing that footage like this was in a movie that you said made a hundred million at the box office. Yeah. I mean, you see dead babies, you see the charred corpses of u.s soldiers being like strung up in the streets of baghdad Mm -hmm. by angry crowds you see wounded u.s soldiers 
you see all manner of uh, footage from Black Hawk helicopters with the kind of night vision as they're like machine gunning Iraqis and stuff. You see, you know, people, you know, as Will was saying before, you know, people weeping because their houses have been destroyed in airstrikes. You know, it goes on and on. There is so much that's like incredibly disturbing. There's just like a 15 or 20 minute stretch that is really, really difficult to watch. Mm -hmm. And I think that this to me is the best part of the film. And it's, that's, you know, kind of in spite of more. I mean, it's not really because of anything he does. It's just because, I mean, except that he chose to put this in the film. It's not because of anything in particular he does with it. But I think that for a lot of people, this is really, really shocking Mm -hmm. that like they're seeing that their federal government, you know, engineered this i think you know given given how like sanitized you know wars have been when they've been covered on cnn whether it's the first gulf war or the iraq war the second gulf war you know you know that's like um it's like a video game or something when you watch it when you experience Mm -hmm. it on the mainstream news and this is like you know this is footage that gives you a hint of what it's actually like and i think the shock that that would have provided to many people you know is uh is justified and it was it was uh it was right to include this in, in the film. I agree. Uh, but, you know, Michael Moore's uh, Republican opponents at the time probably would have said, well, okay, it's war. People are going to die in it. Um, mm-hmm. Obviously, this footage is really tragic and horrible to look at. But how is this different from footage from any war, essentially? I, what, what would be your rebuttal to well, that? Well, it's like I don't, I don't think it is. I just mm-hmm. think that it's important. I mean, the thing is, I think... To someone who's actually seen this footage, like an ordinary person who hasn't been in a war zone, I think that complaint is going to be pretty, like, it's going to ring pretty hollow. Like, mm-hmm. once you've seen this stuff, you can't unsee it. Right. You know, and I think, you know, I think another thing that, you know, the United States generally seems pretty bad at in the wars it engages in is, at least when they're going on, is, you know, empathy for particularly the civilians on the other side, mm-hmm. you know, who are, who are suffering immensely. I mean... By the time that this war had happened, I mean, it's it's worth remembering that uh, Iraq had already been subject to years of, of sanctions, which actually killed, like, half a million people, like, through, like, children starved to death because of um, embargo, trade embargoes imposed on the country and things like that. I mean, this was a country that, its military was, I think, less than half uh, the size at, uh, than it, at it was that it was at the start of the first Gulf War. Like this was a, like a, a broken country, and it had been subjected to repeated British and American airstrikes for years before before this. So, you know, I think that it's good that more included. I mean, it, of course, he doesn't like develop that historical narrative at all because he doesn't care about you know nuance or history. <laughs> but but I just think the shock is important, and uh, I'm not sure that those complaints really stack mm-hmm. up against just the visceral shock of some of the stuff. Which, you know, I've seen, this was my third time seeing the film. I knew all this stuff was coming, and it's still, like, yeah, almost impossible to watch. And uh, just uh, submitted for the record, because this was a popular complaint against the movie among conservatives at the time, we see that montage of footage right before the invasion of Iraq of happy scenes on the streets of Iraq. In fact, uh, John McCain in his speech at the 2004 convention even brought up this scene. Don't let anyone tell you otherwise. Not our political opponents, not, and certainly not, and certainly not a disingenuous filmmaker who would have us believe...
so good, I'll use it again. Certainly not a disingenuous filmmaker. Really? He said um, um, something along the lines of, you know, don't believe the media, don't believe this, that, and certainly don't believe a certain disingenuous filmmaker mm. who would have you believe that Saddam's Iraq was mm. an oasis of peace. Mm. I mean, I guess Michael Moore's rebuttal would be, well, we've seen George W. Bush's version of Iraq right. on the news every single night. So yeah. here, here's a version of Iraq that has a middle class. Right, which, uh, which it did. I mean, the thing is, nobody could reasonably argue... Um, so all these all these people like Christopher Hitchens and you know these kind of the intellectual sycophants of the war that you know after the mm-hmm. weapons of mass destruction argument collapsed which by the way Michael Moore didn't really talk about in this movie at all once that mm-hmm. argument collapsed you know they they needed a new argument so all of a sudden there was this argument about like it's actually about sowing the seeds of democracy in the Middle East and crushing tyranny and stuff and that's what all you know Christopher Hitchens and people were were saying but it's like nobody could 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 possibly like nobody could objectively look at Iraq in like late 2003 or 2004 and say somehow this is better than uh you know Iraq under Saddam Hussein was an incredibly you know brutal and unjust society but it was stable you know mm-hmm. it had it had a middle class and and I think that you know sure you know John McCain is half right you know Moore shows us this kind of montage that he doesn't really you know it's just kids on ferris wheels and people eating lunch and stuff like that you know big gardens and whatever um he doesn't really give us any context for that but i do think there's something to be said for like i don't know what you know most america the average american's view of what iraq was like would have been but it certainly wasn't that right i mean you can even say it today in a movie like um american sniper Mm -hmm. which i don't think you've seen i haven't seen it no i mean that movie basically uh, you know, people will argue for the movie's nuance. But, <laughs> Give me a break. But ba- basically, all we see, what we see of Iraq is that it's basically a, a hellhole of a country that is untamable. Right. Um, yeah. <laughs> only, only. And, and basically, this is this is the face of Iraq War revisionism, though. I mean, even uh, noted human bag of garbage David Frum uh, <laughs> had a tweet today, just this morning. Hang on, let me find it. So, you know, uh, we should no- mention that we're recording this on the day that the Chilcot Inquiry drops in Great Britain. Um, so it's a, I mean, it's a big day in Britain, and there has been an American response, notably by people like David Frum, who, of course, helped write the Axis of Evil speech. He jumped in this morning to tweet uh, some revisionism of his own. He wrote, U.S.-U.K. intervention offered Iraq a better future. Whatever West's mistakes, that's in the West, Sectarian war was a choice Iraqis made for themselves. Okay, so I want to talk about this. You know, like, we can diverge from the film for a minute. I think oh, that... Oh, please. Yeah, I mean, um, so, you know, this is actually something I've thought about a lot. Um, and, you know, I think it's Richard Seymour in his book about Christopher Hitchens, Unhitched. You know, he makes the point that um, there were really three stages of argument to Iraq war apologism. The first was there is a mortal threat from this Arab dictator who's connected to 9-11, who is trying to acquire nuclear material and chemical weapons and stuff. That was all a sham for, like, reasons which I don't need to say. Then it was like, well, even if there weren't weapons there, this mission is a, you know, humanitarian, civilizing mission. It's about sowing the seed, planting the seeds of democracy, which can sort of be engineered. So you had this kind of birth of this weird... I mean, Christopher Hitchens was really good at this, this kind of these kind of liberal democratic ideologues. There was this whole 
you know, Christopher Hitchens came out with a, a version of Thomas Paine's The Rights of Man, which he dedicated to, like, the first Iraqi president and things <laughs> like that, leader of a people's army, he said in, in the dedication. <laughs> then that argument fell apart because, of course, the whole the U.S. made the decision, the, the Occupation Authority made the decision to dismantle the entire Iraqi state. I mean, just dissolve it, uh, the whole civil service, the military, everything. But, I mean, they didn't, they didn't, weren't very successful, I don't think, in disarming the military, so they, uh, so I mean, these militias were formed, and I mean, it's just, so they needed, they needed an explanation for this. People like Christopher Hitchens and others, officials in the Bush administration, and, and, and the kind of assortment of intellectual apologists. Richard Seymour makes the point that this is where Christopher Hitchens decided to write uh, God is Not Great, because suddenly they had, suddenly, you know, there was a great beast they could blame, and that beast was religion. You know, they mm -hmm. could say, well, if it hadn't been for all this kind of, Eastern, like sectarian barbarism, these ancient tribal struggles, and this kind of these this kind of backwards religious ideology that all these people have, it's not. It's so suddenly, you know, it's not on us. It's like there's, you know, these people are, you know, their culture is pathologically like anathema to democratic values or whatever. So you know that from tweet is a good example of it. But basically, this is just about excusing any. I mean, excusing any Western complicity, any American or British complicity in the situation in Iraq, which I think is not something I'm willing to uh, let let anyone get away with. Well, I disagree. <laughs> Moving on. Uh, well, you don't actually. I don't actually. Um, yeah, of course I agree. Uh, but so so. Uh, but, uh, before we move on yeah. to like uh, some more important points, um, <laughs> I feel like we've gone on for a really long time without talking about Michael Moore's stunts. Yeah. His, oh uh, his, God. His trademark uh, bits of business. And you know we love those. If you've been listening to our previous episodes. Well, th this movie has fewer of them than any of his other movies, and it also has the worst of them. I think oh, the, the least the least successful of his little gimmicks. Um, I don't even know why he bothered to include them because this movie's long enough, and I guess he just feels it's like two hours. I, I feel I guess he just feels that well, I'm Michael Moore. They expect a little bit of these shenanigans from me. So the the first one involves um, him learning that nobody in Congress read the Patriot Act before they passed it. So guess what uh, michael moore commandeers an ice cream truck and through the loudspeaker decides to read the patriot act oh in god. washington dc oh my god and um this uh this little bit crescendos into a fizzle Ugh. uh it, it, See, it only lasts about sort of 10 seconds it goes it goes nowhere yeah. i don't even know why michael moore included it it was just pathetic later in the movie we see michael moore uh, in another hilarious scene where Oh my, okay, well, so there's this whole subplot with Lila Lipscomb, um, a mother of a soldier who died in Iraq. So, and we'll get back to her in a minute, but I love the way Michael Moore transitions from it. Uh, he says something like, I guess I just got tired of seeing mothers like Lila Lipscomb have to, and it was the mm. way he said that, I guess. So yeah, this, is one of, this is one of Moore's favorite transition techniques where he, he stages a little, like it's always a little formulation like, I guess, or I was sick of, or something like that. And it's like, it's this combination of like, it's this like hyper-affected earnestness that he's mm -hmm. doing, but it's totally artificial and it makes my skin crawl. And also like, I think he actually wants you to believe it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, these little epiphanies that he has. Uh, well, and the thing is, we know actually from the clothes he's wearing in in this, you know, we fa we, we see you, Michael. Yeah. <laughs> uh, we, we know from the clothes he's wearing in this scene where he's walking around um, central Washington, like the governing district, uh, uh, with, you know, this mom who's lost her son in Iraq. 
earlier we in the film, much earlier, we've seen him in the same clothes uh, out front in front of the Saudi embassy. So on the same day, he obviously recorded these two completely different parts of mm-hmm. the film. So you know these transitions, like the chronology of these films and like how they were, like the you know sure. the order in which they were. I mean, both the narrative chronology and the order in which they were filmed, totally artificial. And also, for the record, Auto World closed before uh, General Motors started <laughs> laying off people. Anyway. <laughs> So Michael Moore was just tired of seeing nice mothers like Lila Lipscomb lose their son. So he decided if members of Congress were going to send these kids off to Iraq, maybe, maybe they should send their own kids to fight. And so he, we see a bit of him talk, you know, trying to sign up members of Congress to uh, re- recruit their kids to go to Iraq. And I should say at this point in the film, sorry to interrupt, I should say at this point in the film, I uh, initially tried to speak very loudly over it because I find this is like, this was where Michael Moore finally pushed me over the edge with his stunts. And then Will said, you know, what did you say? Like one of us has to like keep his eyes on the road. Yeah. And so I like actually plugged my ears and shut my eyes for a good like 35 seconds because this scene where Moore is like intercepting members of Congress and offering them like recruitment literature is one of the like... Ugh. I also it, it just yeah I can't handle it. Also, um, this stunt is conceptually flawed because members of Congress can't just sign up their twenty-year-old sons <laughs> to go fight in Iraq. <laughs> like the the kid has to consent, yeah. <laughs> which you know, I, Michael Moore would probably argue. Well, you know, I'm making a I'm making a obviously this isn't uh, this isn't real. I'm making a rhetorical point, Great. or I'm doing a piece of performance art. He mm-hmm. wouldn't say that. But he wouldn't uh, say that. He wouldn't concede that. So I'm putting I'm putting words into his mouth. Well, I'm, that's what I'm arguing his case for yeah, him. Yeah. Um, but it has to have some it has to have some internal logic to it to make sense. Yeah. And of course, like all of Michael Moore's little stunts, um, it doesn't go anywhere. And he knows the result before he starts doing it. And, you know, coming as it does in a movie that is alternately, you know, part of the movie is a very a very, well, by Michael Moore standards, rigorous that's not the word I'm looking for. <laughs> a, a complicated conspiracy theory. And part of the movie is um, either kind of mawkish sentimentality yeah. or really ugly, gruesome scenes. Grizzly footage, yeah. Um, then, then have these, like, jarringly comic moments Ugh. pop out of nowhere. Um, I don't know. So there's another scene I wanted to talk about, which, I, you know, I think I raised this while we were watching the movie, but so when this... When Lila Lipscomb is walking around just in front of the White House and there's some kind of peace demonstrator who looks like they've camped out there and... She starts crying and talking to this person. She's confronted by someone who's pro-Bush and they have a really testy exchange. And then you see her walking around for a couple more minutes crying. It, it's, mean, a, it's a weird it's scene. It's a very strange scene when you step back and consider that someone's filming this. Because you experience it just as like, you know, you're, this is just an objective kind of account of what happened. And I don't doubt that everything that she feels in the scene is totally authentic. But... This scene had to be engineered, and what per, for what purpose was she being filmed walking around in front of the White House? You know, right. Why is she in Washington? Why is she in Washington to begin with? She's not from Washington. Why is she there? You know, and and like, why is someone following her around, following her around with a camera? And this is where. And I what s- is this interaction that she's about to have with the protester? Because I mean, you know, the protester. I, I don't. I, 
I, I don't know to what extent the scene was staged, but I know from just having been to the White House that there is always a protester outside. Yeah, of course. Yeah. So Ottawa is largely the same. Yeah. yeah. So uh, Lila Lipscomb go, goes up to this woman and and the the protester says something about you, your your kids. They kill mm-hmm. my kids in Iraq. Right. They kill my kids in Iraq. And Lila Lipscomb is having this horrible moment, going, "My son, my son." And then this other woman, this pro Bush woman, mm-hmm. as you said comes up and said, this is all staged, this is all staged, this isn't real. And mm-hmm. then Lila Lipscomb starts arguing with her, yeah, saying, my son staged, died. my son died, is that staged? Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. The whole logic of the scene, yeah, why is she in Washington? Why is she talking to this? Yeah. I don't know. It, it, and it's like, I don't think this is a staged scene. It, 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 like, it's not, I don't think, like, this woman who comes up to her is, like, an actor or something. I right. just think, I just think, I think the scene unfolded naturally. I just think, you know, Moore or someone on his team sent her there with a camera sort of having some idea of what was going to happen and there doesn't seem to be any purpose for her being there. It's like she's not on her way anywhere. She's just there. And I find that, like, there could be an ethical case against this scene. Well, if this were just, like, your standard Michael Moore stunt of somebody, somebody goes to Washington and does some dumb piece of performance art. That's one thing. But this is a grieving mother. This is a grieving mother whose grief in this scene, no matter how contrived very or constructed real. the scene is. Yeah, it's very real. And we're seeing her cry and it's awful. Um, and it's that tension between the fact that this is a weird, contrived moment and the fact that her grief is really real and palpable that makes it not just hard to watch, but really icky. Yeah, I, I agree. So uh, there's one uh, facet of the film which I don't think we've talked about yet, which is the military recruitment stuff. Yeah, that was kind of interesting. Which I think is interesting. So there's a scene where you see these two extremely well-dressed, you know, Marines or something, and they're, you know, they're walking around in, you know, I guess an economically depressed neighborhood and in sort of mall parking lots, things like that. And they are, you know, recruiting, approaching mostly young men. And these guys are so good at their jobs. It's amazing to, uh, like, it's actually quite amazing to watch. They use kind of door-to-door salesman techniques, getting little bits of information with people, you know, asking these guys, like, oh, how old are you? Oh, yeah, really, you look older than that. Um, oh, you play basketball. Great. Yeah, you know, um, you like Shaggy? Oh, yeah, he was a former Marine. Or, like, you know, lists list off a bunch of basketball players that are former Marines or something. You could be a Marine, like, that kind of thing. Um, so it's like door-to-door salesman tactics plus like preying on the like, I don't know, ma- you know, the masculinity of these mm-hmm. like young men in these, you know, economically depressed areas as opposed to the wealthier neighborhoods. I mean, there's not really anything to say about it. It just, I think it's another thing in that, in the movie that it's good that it's there. It's good that people saw this and it more again doesn't really do anything with it, but I think mm-hmm. it's important to see it. Yeah, it's interesting. Yeah. Um, the movie ends with... Uh, Michael Moore reciting a quote from George Orwell, a long quote, which basically is about the military-industrial complex. It's, it's from 1984, and it's about Oceania and, mm-hmm. and Eurasia. And, ba- and basically making uh, making the case that perpetual war is needed to maintain the status quo um, mm-hmm. of elites and the poor. Of a, of a hierarchical society. George Orwell once wrote that it's not a matter of whether the war is not real or if it is. Victory is not possible. The war is not meant to be won, it is meant to be continuous. A hierarchical society is only possible on the basis of poverty and ignorance. This new version is the past, and no different past can ever have existed. In principle, the 
the war effort is always planned to keep society on the brink of starvation. The war is waged by the ruling group against its own subjects, and its object is not the victory over either Eurasia or East Asia, but to keep the very structure of society intact. And um, I was listening to this. First of all, uh, it's a beautiful piece of writing. Yeah. It's a real breath of fresh air coming after two hours of, you know, just very mediocre Michael Moore narration. Honestly, even though it's a really bleak passage, it was sort of soft like the summer breeze oh, after watching right? like Michael Moore and like his grating. I guess narration. I just got tired oh. of seeing Lila Lipscomb. Oh. <laughs> and that, yeah. Um, and then listening to it. So not only was it really nice, but I listened to it and I thought, geez, wouldn't it be nice if that's what the movie was about? Because we've mm-hmm. had about an hour of just kind of, well, two hours of a lot of random disparate arguments that only occasionally touched on class issues. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Or or and, any kind of, let alone any kind of yeah. structural argument for why the war is happening or anything. So It's too bad the whole film isn't about this. Overall, um, I thought that it was not a particularly good movie, but it was also the second best movie we've seen so far. Next to Roger and me. Right. And it's a very precipitous gulf between those two films. (laughs) Uh, So I guess one comment I'd make is that the Iraq War was one of the most formative events, uh, you know, in recent world history. Uh, I remember watching it unfold and, 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 and everything. I remember it was, you know, it was a big part of big part of the news it was a big part of you know i i was i was very anti-iraq war i walked around wearing little peace signs and things like that (laughs) at age 14 or 15 i had arguments with kids in my class about it Mm -hmm. had arguments about george w bush and whether he lied and all this kind of stuff arguments on the school bus all these kinds of things i think the iraq war deserves a better film than this i think that you know, this film, this is a film that was engineered for a very specific purpose, which was to come out during the 2004 election and the lead up to it, um, and to basically delegitimize President Bush so that he'd lose the election. It didn't succeed in doing that. It is a rhetorically effective film in many ways. It's an excellent piece of political propaganda. But, you know, since we're recording this on the day that the Chilcot Inquiry reports, you know, I think that this is a this is a historical event that deserves better than what Michael Moore uh, is going to say about it uh, ever, and and I hope that somebody makes that film. I think it's unfortunate that George W. Bush was given faulty intelligence, <laughs> but ultimately you can't dispute uh, the intention behind the Iraq <laughs> War, which was to free the Iraqi people from a tyrannical despot. And I mean, as Britney Spears says, you know, the president knows what he's doing. I think we should just trust him. And also, like, Luke, I don't think you understand that we're at war, and in times of war, it's treasonous. It's either us to, or them. Yeah. Uh, so next week, I think we're going to... Good grief. Uh, next week, I think we're going to move into the Michael Moore extended universe. Mm. So I think I think it's safe to say that after this very intense period of of bowling for Columbine and Fahrenheit 9/11, we you know we'd like to take a little pause. Uh, we'd like to put off some of the other heavy hitters, sicko, capitalism, a love story, just for a little bit. And also, we've been so hard on Michael Moore yeah. for all these episodes that let's let's go after his critics a little bit. So so tell us what we're going to do. I think uh, we're going to start with, the, there, there was a wave of anti-Michael Moore documentaries in this time, and I think I'd, I'd like to start with the one that was available at every blockbuster, um, which is Fahrenheit 9-11. 
I've never seen it. I've never seen it either. I'm uh, excited. Um, I'm not quite sure where we'll find a copy of it. <laughs> so if we don't, I, I'm sure I'll be able to find it somewhere. It's got to be on YouTube, right? In the, you know, in buried in some dark corner of the internet, cached yeah. in some <laughs> sad website. Um, it's apparently a point by point rebuttal of Fahrenheit 9/11. So I'm sure that they'll have. It, it, address all of our points <laughs> um, yeah, i'm sure they'll address the lack of historical nuance <laughs> i know that uh ann coulter is in it oh amazing remember her there's a name i haven't thought of for a while yeah uh, and we've also got with michael moore hates america that's coming right? up yeah um i and i think uh i'm not sure if we're gonna do this just yet but uh manufacturing dissent is coming up that's the well, maybe not left wing, but the liberal mm-hmm. critique of mm-hmm. Michael Moore. There's also an American Carol, which you've seen and I haven't. Oh yeah, that. Oh, I'm so excited for that. <laughs> so one. that's the one I'm looking forward to the most because I, you know, I think um, I need some laughs. You know, this 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 uh, this episode. Um, think... Excuse me, the Bonanza ep- uh, moment <laughs> from Fahrenheit 9/11 wasn't that funny. <laughs> I think uh, I think this moment is the first time we've like really laughed on this episode of the podcast. <laughs> Because it's so, it's so depressing. Um, I mean, in, fa- in fairness, we did see a truck full of dead babies in Fahrenheit 9-11. Yeah, that's true. Uh, that, <laughs> that took a lot out of me. Mm, we're the real victims here. It's time, to, it's time to have some fun and watch and kick back with an American Carol. And even though Bowling for Columbine was full of real footage of people being killed, mm-hmm. that one was just nonstop laughs. It is, yeah. I mean, yeah. We, we've been, I think all these films have given us kind of something to laugh at, and this one... I mean, all you can really do is kind of laugh nervously at, like, the tonal, the awkward tonal segues, because it's your only defense mechanism. Anyways, I'm looking forward to the films ahead. I, I, I don't think we're sure yet, kind of, if we're going to tackle, you know, one at a time, or if we're going to do... One at a time. One, you want to do... I want to stretch this out as long as possible. <laughs> I want to, like, wade in the muck for as long it as may I can. Be, it may be that we find that, you know, one of these films alone is too thin for a full episode, but... Uh, you know, Impossible. That's, that's that's we did a whole episode on Canadian bacon. And slacker uprising. <laughs> My God. So that's for us to know, and uh, you all to find out in the weeks ahead. We're really looking forward to it. Uh, so until next time, I was Luke Savage, and I was Will Sloan. Now watch this drive. Let the eagle soar like she's never soared before. From rocky coast to golden shore, let the mighty eagle soar, soar with healing in her wings, as the land beneath her sings, only God knows. Let the mighty eagle soar, let the eagle soar, like she's never soared before, from rocky coast to golden shore, let the mighty God, no other kings 
Let the mighty eagle soar. Only God, no other kings. Let the mighty God bless you. Thank you.